everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Exchange, COVID-19 and Beyond. My name is Paulo Lele, as always, and on today's episode, we'll be talking about the future of e-commerce post-AFCFTA implementations. For me, as always, I have my two co-hosts, Tonya Digby-Tamor and Margaret Olele. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Nice to hear from you. For a couple of weeks now, we've noticed um, a spike in the number of COVID-19 cases. Um, and in Nigeria, uh, despite a number of multinational firms working from home, um, we still see um, continued increase in the COVID-19 cases. Um, Paul turning, I think it was um, 16th Avenue or Pennsylvania Avenue into uh, a different, um, you know, painting it um, yellow with Black Lives Matter. So tell me a little bit what's going on and what's the mood like over there? Well, um, what's going on out here in uh, the nation's capital in the United States? Uh, well, the uh, um, and what is also going on across the country as well is uh, people who uh, have, uh, who, who have, um, I, I would say, who are frustrated and people who have taken to the streets to express their, um, their, uh, their, 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 their anger and um, want change to happen. Um, and I, I put it at that. And uh, the 16th um, Avenue, the Black Lives Matter, um uh a, a painting on on the streets I, I that's that's a that's that's the okay gesture um the only thing is that policies do also have to uh, uh, uh come after that um as opposed to just making something that's symbolic there needs to be um policies done to uh change uh the actual system in regards to covid 19 though um uh, uh, bars are uh, slowly reopening in the city. I know some restaurants um, are now doing uh, uh, in-dining services. In fact, I was outside yesterday and I saw some people um, going into uh, uh, some of these places to to eat, but obviously not really at a high capacity. There's a there's a specific limit. Um, but yeah, I mean that's 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 how it is out here in uh, in, in Washington D.C. the D.C. metropolitan area. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, well, I mean, obviously, globally, there have been all these um, fervid activities around um, a clamor for change. Um, I guess that's natural in a situation when we have unusual things happening, you know, um, in the world. Uh, but let's go back to um, the our program today. Um, since uh, the last episode, um, we know that our various organizations have been doing various things around COVID. I know that a lot of private sector organizations in Nigeria have been making great strides to reduce the challenges around uh, the impact of COVID. Um, for ABC, I know that we organized uh, webinars to identify ways to combat counterfeit issues, um, especially in demand for PPEs and other equipment needed for by frontline workers. Um, and so I, I know that we've been doing that and uh, this is happening uh, not obviously within uh, the private sector alone, but also from the social 
impact investment uh, areas as well. So I know that a lot of our companies, uh, uh, American Business Council companies are doing quite a lot and uh, it, will be, it will be great to know, um, Sam and Paul, what your organizations are doing or have been doing. My organization has been busy um, over the last week um, with the, the, the Leaders Forum. Uh, the Corporate Council in Africa organized the Leaders Forum, a four-day a four day uh, forum, which brought together uh, uh, various um, heads of state um, across Africa and um, U.S. government officials as well. Uh, notably, uh, uh, the president of uh, Rwanda, Paul Kagame, was there. Uh, president of, uh, of Mozambique, um, His Excellency Felipe uh, 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 Yunsi, and also the president of Ghana and uh, the president of, uh, of Kenya. And uh, what the major topic was, was uh, it, it focused specifically on resiliency methods to, to, to curb COVID-19 on the African continent. That was the major theme of, um, of our forum. And we had representatives from Visa, Caterpillar, um, Procter & Gamble, uh, and, and others who, who spoke on issues as well. Quite interesting. I, I recall I attended some of the sessions and they were really fantastic. And I, I know, Tony, you've been very busy in recent times. We um, joined forces with the Bertha Center in, um, in South Africa to host um, a webinar on impact investing for foundations. Uh, as you can imagine, this is now the time to um, foundations and philanthropic institutions in general are really looking at how they can um, pivot their business as well and, and really look at ways to be more impactful to their grantees. And, and so, um, so what better way than to really kind of look at, um, you know, impact investing, which is, you know, really look um, organizations who had uh, who have at their very core um, the the social and and commercial uh, mission um, that are really linked right from the beginning um, and focused on really making impact. Um, so that really, how do you now bring that into that whole idea of impact investing? How do you bring that that focus area into um, foundations in terms of um, how they now give grants? Because um, a lot of organizations are looking at impact uh, as as a result of um, the funds that they've been given. So, so it's, you know, and especially now during the COVID-19, um, you know, pandemic, there's a lot of need that's out there, a lot of demand side of the capital. And, and so how do you really have a, a fantastic bridge between the supply side of capital and the demand side of capital? The other um, focus area has been um, us launching, or we will be launching, um, uh, the, a consortium that's focused on, again, aggregating all the resources and um, all the efforts around COVID-19, which is so important. So as you can imagine, uh, SMEs, MSMEs are so uh, are important uh, people uh, and organizations um, within that uh, framework. So helping impact businesses and impact enterprises. 
to really recover um, and and to focus on recovery and resiliency and and really bring in their um, organization to to a different level um, during COVID and and even post. And then the third thing I wanted to talk about was circular economy. We partnered with the Circular Economy Innovation Partnerships to again do a, a webinar on on um, you know waste. How do you um, um, promote um, economic development through circular economy, and also how do you uh, build um, a, a resilient um, economy by reducing waste such as plastic? So that was also a very well attended. Um, webinar. So that's that's what we've been doing. Mm, that's that's really interesting. You know, I, I shared with someone recently uh, that the next um, webinar I hear, COVID nineteen or pandemic, I would I would not attend. But the reality is, it's, it's not just to talk about the uh, pandemic or the challenges or the or the, or, or the pains around it, but to look at very proactive ways towards resolving the issues arising from it as it impacts lives, livelihoods, and uh, businesses, and also uh, the different aspects of our existence. And, uh, and and so I'm really happy when I hear uh, these kinds of programs that we've been having. Obviously, these are more proactive ways towards looking at uh, COVID-19 and beyond. For us, our real big event that we, we did recently uh, in partnership with the African Continental Free Trade Area, was uh, the, the webinar that we we, we, we had um, to, to look at how, how um, we can situate the AFCFTA uh, within um, the um, COVID-19, post-COVID-19 issues um, in Africa. And we did this in partnership with the, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, as well as the, uh, the uh, Amcham in Ghana. It was extremely well attended, and when we're talking about recovery, I recall that the uh, the Secretary General um, Kelly said, "Look, that AFCFTA uh, is really the answer to is our own recipe for the uh, economic policy." So this was for us a great event, and here, you know, we we, we looked at you know also areas uh, to com to combat counterfeiting, especially. Uh, issues around demand for PPEs and other equipment around, you know, um, the, the resolving issues around COVID and equipment needed for frontline workers. So uh, we, we also do a couple of things that we um, identified and, and um, we just wanted to know um, how, uh, you know, the funding opportunities that also exist uh, between um, the United States for businesses um, as we move on, and also the partnership that we're going to be running um, as the U.S. private sector with the AFCFTA. So, um, yeah, these were some of the issues. But I do recall that uh, Paul um, asked a question around uh, uh, counterfeits. Yes, I did. Let's play it. What role does the AFCFTA play in the fight against counterfeits and parallel trade as their number of cases on fake products and equipment during this pandemic? Thank you very much for, for the question. Well, first, I think um, uh, uh, counterfeit goods is, it falls into the category of um, typically goods that are transshipped for the most part are goods that, that are counterfeit or substandard. 
And so we we have in the agreement we have rules uh, that prevent uh, the the um, the trading in, in in substandard goods or goods that are that are counterfeit. Uh, and again, it goes back to the challenge of customs procedures and the ability to enforce customs procedures. Paul, what, what actually inspired you to, to ask Tom Kelly about the sound of this? Well, we, uh, we, we had a webinar before that uh, um, with, the, with the, that's the Corporate Council in Africa that touched on um, counterfeit um, with the with the um, Africa CDC, and then they were talking about Africa being a a, a dumping ground for uh, counterfeit drugs. So I just wanted to to, to, to hear his perspective, um, and to uh, and, and to ask um, uh, uh, um, his perspective on that on that issue. Now, on today's episode, we have Juliet Anama. She's the chairperson and the head of institutional affairs at the Jumia Group. And she has decades of experience in senior managerial roles, including 11 years as a director um, at Accenture. In a position at that time, she was a managing director of Accenture's products operating groups covering Nigeria and West Africa. She was responsible for the group's financial performance. And she was also a board of directors at uh, the American Business Council. Her career at Jumia began in 2015 managing the e-commerce startup. And she's also a pharmacist by training and a graduate of the University of Nigeria, Nsuka. She has an MBA in finance and an AMP from the Wharton School. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Um, thanks, uh, Margaret and everyone. Pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Jumi has been on um, an online market powerhouse, bringing products to consumers. Um, so, I'm, you know, with the onslaught of the pandemic, I'm sure this has been a very interesting and delicate time for, for your business. How has e-commerce thrived in Africa during this period? Thanks, Tony. Um, so I, I like the fact that you used the, the word interesting because um, it has been interesting. Um, when the pandemic hit initially, as you can imagine, as a public health crisis uh, on the continent. So the, if I look at uh, across the 11 countries where we operate, um, the, the responsiveness uh, was different in different areas, right? Different countries. And so uh, we quickly realized that, look, um, if there was any business model that was um, as relevant for this fight against COVID, at this particular point in time, it was it was e-commerce, and therefore we quickly rallied and we got in touch with a, a number of government agencies to say, look, there are many things we can do here. There are ways we can help our our e-commerce platform and the ways of operating, the ways of working of e-commerce are quite relevant to this time. Be it in terms of contactless shopping for consumers, the contactless deliveries, all of those. Um, are really part of what e-commerce does and therefore could be quite relevant. So we did quite a lot um, when when we started. Um, as things progressed, we also uh, saw uh, the way the consumer 
uh, no longer sees e-commerce. I mean, for eight years, I guess, we were trying to uh, sell the message that e-commerce is, is um, an efficient means of shopping, but to a great extent on the continent is regarded as a, a convenience, you know. Um, but I think the pandemic made it clear that, look, um, it's not just a convenience, it's not just in terms of efficiency, it's actually a safe way of shopping. And more consumers got to understand that. We also saw consumers uh, changing in terms of their habits of uh, rather than typically look for uh, durable goods online. Now, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, people just wanted to buy basic uh, food items, basic groceries. A mother is home uh, taking care of four kids and she's still working. She can't cook. She needs to order food from a restaurant. So food delivery, those things became very important. So we we uh, we saw that and, and we responded also making sure that we had um, uh, we had the right partnerships with uh, several companies, uh, Rekits and Benkitsa, uh, bringing uh, hygiene products, the Procter & Gamble's, the Coca-Cola, as a many other companies, just to make sure that we could provide uh, consumers with basic products, uh, basic grocery items at the right prices. And in some cases, um, you know, we also had partnerships where consumers even had free delivery uh, of, uh, of essentials uh, over that period. We, are, we also got involved with them um, helping to secure um, PPE through uh, channels in uh, China, given that we have a large network of, of uh, suppliers in China, we're able to also help in, in, in securing uh, PPE in, in some instances. So it's, it's been a, a very interesting uh, um, two or three months, I, I would say. Uh, the lockdowns initially didn't, of course, help, but uh, I think it became clearer after the first month or six weeks, uh, government understood uh, that e-commerce was quite critical. And it's, then we started to see uh, exemptions in Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Kenya, and, and so on and so forth to allow e-commerce operations to, to reach uh, consumers. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, were there specific um, steps and measures that uh, Jumia um, took or are still, take, uh, still taking to ensure the safety and protection of uh, both clients and even um, the staff of Jumia? Because, you know, e-commerce obviously involves a certain level of interaction because at the point of delivery, there must be some interaction. Certainly, certainly, yeah. Just like you rightly pointed out, um, when it comes to, I mean, everything is online, but then, of course, the actual delivery of a physical good requires someone in a warehouse to pick, pack, ship that item, uh, requires someone, a delivery agent, to actually take that item and deliver to a consumer. So, at the same time that every e-commerce uh, operation worldwide moved to contactless deliveries, we also did the same. So we, we made sure that all our uh, delivery agents, that they had uh, hand sanitizers, they were checked every day for, temp we had temperature checks on them, we had uh, disinfection, sanitization of trucks, uh, warehouse locations and so on. And of course, we moved to the mode where they don't actually physically hand over an item to a consumer. Uh, they would wait like some distance, drop it at the door, wait for some distance. And then when customer picks it up, then they leave. Right. We even adapted immediately because in Nigeria for a long time, we've always had um, 
payment on delivery as an option. But during uh, this this crisis, we also had to say, look, you know, let's eliminate cash as much as possible, or even uh, any touch of a POS terminal as much as possible, because those are potential um, uh, person-to-person infection uh, points. Uh, so we adapted our junior pay, which is a payment solution also to handle that, that even if a customer hadn't uh, prepaid online, at the point of delivery with using short code, they could still get the option of, of payment on delivery without uh, transfer of cash, without actual handling of cash or handling of the POS terminal and so on. So we did that. For our staff also, we uh, we made sure, uh, like I talked about disinfection, talked about the tre- temperature checks, uh, and you know, to this day we've been relatively quite lucky, even across 11 countries. Um, and then we also moved uh, some parts of our operations that didn't need to be physically in the office. We moved them online, uh, remotely. Uh, literally, we collapsed our decision-making um, uh, organizational structures to make it flatter for decision-making since people were moving, uh, working remotely. Um, so that only the staff who needed to be uh, physically in the office, and, and those were predominantly the ones in logistics, uh, were the ones who were who had to be uh, in, at work. Yeah. So these are some of the things that we, we did in terms of health and safety for for staff, and also uh, you know that also impacts our consumers and the community. Interesting. Um, I wanted to bring your attention to uh, the concerns of uh, receiving packages. Now, the WHO and um, the CDC um, have talked about the concerns of uh, receiving packages from places, um, um, from regions um, that have uh, soaring rates of uh, COVID-19. And they actually said, I think this is the actual excerpt that they said, Um, They said the likelihood of an infected person contaminating commercial goods is low and the risk of catching the virus that causes COVID-19 from a package that has been moved, traveled and exposed to different conditions and temperature is also is 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 also uh, a low. So for a country like Nigeria, where you have goods um, shipped from China, how well has this message been communicated and what is the feedback like? Um, in terms of communication, I think I would leave that to the CDC and the WHO. Uh, those are the formal channels for communicating that. So I will speak more from our experience. I think during the COVID, it, I think right now it's only just recently that I will say that an item shipped from uh, China uh, because on Jumia platform, a consumer can have the option of ordering something that is being shipped in globally, right? Uh, it's just recently that things have come back to normal where an item uh, can be ordered today and uh, will arrive between uh, 13 to 14 days, right? Um, and if I look at the experience during the, the pandemic, uh, you know, global items uh, took quite a long time, in some cases six weeks, in some t- cases it was more than two months for things to arrive. Um, I would go with whatever the WHO says and I would go with what the CDC says in terms of um, actual handling. They, they have looked at all the, all the data and all the research around uh, what is the transmissibility of the virus uh, when uh, it's, uh, it's a touch that has been 
uh, you know, on a package that has been um, uh, subjected to sea travel, to air travel, and has and has gone through storage and all that in different conditions uh, over the past uh, uh, between 14 days to two months. If they rate that as low, uh, I would say that it's that I would take that that um, that recommendation. Now, have we seen concerns from our customers? Um, no, not that I'm, I'm aware of. Uh, I mean, we we are we also, of course, we we concentrate on educating the consumer about uh, what is most important. Uh, despite all of that, uh, we still make sure that at the point of delivery, that it comes, there's no touch uh, handling uh, between the consumer and the um, and the and the delivery agent who who's bringing the item. And recently, I've also seen even the state of Virginia, where I am right now, I've seen that. Uh, there's a, a new um, CDC um, a guideline in terms of uh, the different risk factors, sorry, the different activities as states are reopening and the risk associated with it. I mean, handling a package is rated risk number one. Uh, while uh, it goes up the rate, and, and we're talking about a risk ratio that goes all the way to 10. And 10 uh, is in the, I mean, sitting down at a restaurant and indoor restaurants is at the level of 10. Whereas uh, receiving a package, either it's in the mail or it's uh, an item that came through uh, e-commerce uh, delivery, it's still rated number one. Um, so to that extent, I think what we concentrate on is really the part that is our responsibility, which is when the consumer is going to actually receive that item, uh, make sure that it's still contactless, contactless delivery that is, uh, that is at play. So retail businesses are being affected by COVID-19 and customer behavior is rapidly changing. Um, could you share some insights on, on this from Jumia's perspective? And, and how has Jumia adjusted its operations to meet the behavioral um, changes of its customers? Yeah, thanks, Tony. I mean, um, it, uh, to the first question I had um, responded, and it, it's still relevant here as well, that e-commerce is, is pretty much adapted to, um, uh, to a post-pandemic world, put it that way, because of the, the means of shopping itself, it's, uh, it's contactless. Uh, payments, you can also deploy contactless uh, uh, payment methods and also contactless deliveries. So all of that part already exists. Okay. Um, the, the, fact, the part that I would say has changed is in terms of the consumer awareness of um, the place of uh, digital shopping and digital ways of you know, preparing items relative to physical shopping. Uh, pre and post uh, the, the crisis that happened. So now people see, you know, before if, if I was going to shop online, it was almost like, you know, uh, a nice to have or a convenience. But now it's like I, I would search and get it online first if I can't, then I will visit the physical store. So that, that, that has shifted. Um, secondly, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, what people look for, uh, so rather than look for just um, uh, fashion items or durable goods, if I wanted to buy a washing machine or TV or laptop or phone, um, I'll, be, I'll be going online. Now I look for grocery items. So um, that has also made us uh, to invest more in, in basic essential grocery items, make sure that we have the right assortment for, for consumers and that they get they can get it at the right prices. And secondly, also make sure that 
the sellers on our platform because we run a marketplace. We don't own the inventory. The inventory at the end of the day is owned either by the brand or is owned by a distributor of the brand or is an SME uh, seller on the platform who's listing those products. Just making sure that they are also not taking advantage of consumers in terms of price gouging because that was something that happened quite a lot uh, during the, uh, the pandemic across all platforms um, in the world. So uh, strict rules around price gouging, those are things that we've put in place, uh, delisting, uh, you know, delisting SKUs or delisting the sellers entirely. Um, um, you know, partnerships to bring more products, bring wider assortment of, of, um, of basic food items uh, for consumers, expanding uh, restaurant deliveries and so on, but to also support uh, families who are in need for it. Even sometimes the hospitals, uh, workers, uh, uh, you know, needed uh, restaurant deliveries also. So we, we also made sure that we had that uh, available. So it, it's not in terms of changing operation. It's just a, a function of certain uh, aspects of our, of, our, of, of, of our offering that became very important that we needed to uh, invest more in, in developing the right relationships or uh, putting together new policies or new ways of working so that we could respond to that. I think the second, and to buttress the importance of, uh, of uh, groceries to consumers post, post the crisis is that the second half of March, we saw when we looked at the second half of March versus the previous, the first half of March, uh, groceries on our platform was almost like four times, which, which meant that that's what was more important to consumers. And uh, we, that's why it, it was very important for us to respond to that by making sure we had the right assortment and the right partnerships to bring those those items to bear. Um, so those that's that's how I would say it has uh, retail from our perspective has um, has evolved uh, during the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks a lot, Juliet. Uh, I, I just want to go back again to um, the discussion I shared earlier, uh, which was the webinar we had with the uh, the AFCF um, TA. Um, at that uh, webinar, uh, during the webinar, the um, the Secretary General, His Excellency Wang Kelian, stressed um, that the AFCF TA is the economic stimulus for Africa. Uh, how does uh, Jumia envision the e-commerce space evolving uh, with the obviously with the potential implementation of EFCFTA? E-commerce um, is really about bringing consumers and sellers right uh, onto a platform where they they can transact. So um, from an African context, you have 1.3 billion consumers, and from our own estimates, you have about 17 million merchants. So it's really about how do we bring uh, these two parties who want to transact and want to transact in a, in a, you know, from what they've been doing offline to an online environment, which is e-commerce. Right? So to that extent, e-commerce is um, from the perspective of, of um, facilitating trade on the con on, on the continent, it is ready. Uh, the systems are there. Uh, E-commerce ultimately is about marketplace. You have a marketplace of sellers. You have logistics systems that power the delivery of the items, the transport and the shipment, and then you have payments. So all of that has been built. Okay. And so e-commerce today can cover business to business. It can cover business to consumer, business to government, and even government to government. Okay. So I think with the implementation of AFCTA and, and beyond the policies that will come with it, it's really the policies that bring everything to life. 
There's certain other elements that are very important, and those will really then help e-commerce to to support AFCTA and um, realize the full potentials. Uh, some of them are, for example, in terms of cross-border electronic payments. Uh, some of them are, are, are about digitization of trade documents across borders, right? Some of them are about what you call a de, de minimis threshold, um, just ensuring that um, uh, th there's this um, agreement between countries that if an item is being shipped from one country to the other and the value of that item is below a certain uh, uh, value, right, then it does not need to go through uh, customs inspection and so on and actually does not even attract a customs duty. Okay. Uh, that 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 provision exists today at WTO level, and I believe that that will be very important for the cross-African perspective that 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 agreement also exists. And uh, one another thing that could be very helpful is what I've seen the U.S. Customs uh, and uh, Border Protection Bureau do uh, in April when they came up with a new strategy, realizing that look, with the growth of e-commerce. They really can't inspect every every package, every document that is coming through the borders, and therefore defining what they call a, a known shipper program, and and do, using more of e-commerce platforms to have an arrangement with e-commerce platforms, agree certain uh, types of documentation that can then be reviewed with periodically, so you can have a monthly reconciliation of records to make sure that everything that came through is exactly what was declared on the on the manifest. And e-commerce makes these things transparent because for each item that is shipped, just from the order number, you can tell what item it was, the specifications, the price of the item, the VAT, customs tariffs that were applicable to that item. So with that level of transparency, you really don't need to have a, the, uh, the daily and manual process of checking items cross-border and so on. So, all of these things, uh, if they happen in tandem with the broader AFCTA um, policies and, and programs and rules and so on, will really then support e-commerce to uh, to to uh, to uh, help in implementation of the of, of of facilitating trade. Because I look at it beyond the agreement itself. The intent really is facilitating cross. African trade. And like I said earlier, the, the systems are there, the marketplace is there, the uh, the logistics network to make it happen, the, the payment system is it's already developed. It's really these other things that once they're in place, then uh, really e-commerce can, can really support quite a lot. Thank you for that. Um, now, we know Jumia is um, an e-commerce giant in Africa. So how does uh, how does Jumia tend to support the uh, implementation of the AFCFTA in order for um, the e-commerce sector to work efficiently? Yeah, for 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 us, um, I'll, I'll give you one good example of how uh, we can support uh, once uh, the policies, like I said, because ultimately this is about uh, cross uh, cross border trade, right? Um, we already have a well-developed B2C uh, uh, marketplace. Uh, today, uh, you can, whatever you buy on Jumia, it's sold, uh, most times it will be sold by, by an SME, okay? Uh, we have brands, of course, we have manufacturers, we have uh, distributors as well, but the larger base is really about SMEs. And we can, 
uh, we can um, expand as we grow and we bring in more and more SMEs to sell on, on, on Junior. We are expanding uh, and in a way implementing the real objective of, of the ACFT, which is really uh, about uh, facilitating cross-border trade. Um, we can also support in many other ways. Uh, I'll give a, uh, one example. We, um, during, when the pandemic happened, uh, there were some countries in Africa that uh, initiated very similar to what the US, uh, you know, the Defense Production Act, which is really about getting manufacturers to, um, uh, you know, change, move away from what their, their traditional products that were built to produce, to actually produce PPEs, right? That's what the Defense Production Act was for. Uh, in the end, I think the Trump administration didn't actually trigger it, but uh, some countries in Africa triggered something very similar. Uh, so they, they, they mandated some manufacturers not to produce anything else except for PPEs. Uh, and they did, and now they have an excess. Now, here's where e-commerce can help, uh, which is again part of the objective of, uh, of, of the free trade agreement, which is the, in, this information of what is available in one country and yet what is needed in another country, is not, is, that information is not transparent. There may be some countries in Africa, and there certainly are some countries in Africa, they have a shortage of PPE, but they don't know there's a surplus in another country, right? Uh, so working with the, A, uh, with the uh, sometimes I mix it up, whether it's ACFT or AFCCTA, so you forgive me, uh, we could make sure that we can create a landing page on Junior where there's government to government uh, sharing of information, and that could also facilitate trade. Uh, I have a surplus in Kenya and Nigeria has a requirement for that specific surplus or it's Ethiopia versus Rwanda. Uh, one thing that e-commerce does is break down the barriers of in information gaps. So we could we could work with the AFCTA from that perspective and say, look, we can start as small as it is from a government to government, uh, even understanding of what what is available in one country versus what is not available. And once people want to go online and you find information, you're going to find pricing, you're going to find the item, uh, all of that information. That's that's 60 to 70 percent of the job done before you even click to buy. So these, these are ways in which um, we plan to support beyond just the B2C and the B2B um, um, means of, uh, of, of trade. Thank you for that. It's, it's, and it's actually um, the, the um, AFCFTA. Um, I just wanted to... Yeah, I know. I keep mixing them up sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but, th but thank you for that. Thank you. For that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always a, an interesting mouthful. I've tried after, and uh, yeah, I, it took a lot of uh, training together. But at the end of the day, uh, it, I guess it's the work they're going to be doing in in, in Africa. <laughs> and, and and you shared very interesting perspectives of what e-commerce could really do. Uh, you know, working with uh, AFCFTA, and uh, we look forward to. Integrating uh, the the these uh, insights and perspectives into our next conversation with uh, with the AFCFTA uh, because we plan to to move into the private sector engagement. In fact, uh, the Secretary General committed to the next level private sector um, engagement, and this obviously would be an area we'd like to highlight. I mean, this are uh, just some exciting perspectives, uh, but unfortunately. 
looks like we're running against time and we're going to be ending this pretty soon. Um, Juliet, thank you so much for making our time and for coming um, to to share your insights. Uh, we are very we're very happy to 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 always um, uh, engage on issues on e-commerce and I and 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 we always um, like the passion you you share around e-commerce because obviously. Uh, those are the next uh, big things in, in, in the continent. Uh, we also like to thank our, our sponsors, uh, Mantrak, who have um, made it possible for us to expand you know, our platforms and sharing this to more, more people. So, so thank you once again. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Join us on our next episode when we will focus on the COVID-19 impact consortium. Until then, as always, on behalf of my co-host, Paul Olele, and Margaret Ulele of American Business Council. Thank you for listening. I am Toyin Adigbite Moore, African Venture Philanthropy Alliance. Please stay well, be safe, and always wear your mask when you're outdoors. <laughs>